Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. And I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? Good. I said that with some enthusiasm. You I hope did, you man. You're on top of the world. I do feel I feel on top of the world. I really do. I good. You know, I've I've been uh dealing with so many cases and trials and stuff, and then normal things in life get in the way, but you know, all said and done, I come back to my happy place, which is practicing law. Uh and practicing in the realm of criminal defense. It's what yeah, makes me- well, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm uh, preparing for uh, some uh, federal trial in uh, one federal and one state trial in January, both of which are um, um, quite fascinating, I have to say. Um, but more importantly, we just got done with Thanksgiving, which was fantastic for me mm-hmm. and for you. Yeah, for me too, yeah. It was. And then it's Christmas season, which of course is the best time of year. I mean, hands down. Right. Uh, I, I've known plenty of people over the course of my life that were like, bah humbug, I'm the Grinch kind of person, you know, people that are just like, you know, Christmas is just an inconvenience or it's a commercial holiday and all it is is to get people to spend lots of money, blah, blah, blah. But I know you to be very um, sentimental and, you know, like like Norman Rockwell reminiscent of the so- holidays. Yes. So this is true. And the reason, it's, you know, it's I'm sure that I would have to ask, you know, a therapist about um, to really get down to, you know, maybe my mother did something. I don't know. <laughs> um, didn't get hugged enough or something. But um, the, the truth is, is that the the world, as we know, after all these years of life between the two of us, is a kind of a crazy place with a lot of ups and downs and uncertainties. And we've had ours in our own personal lives and you know, the country has had them and Christmas to me is like this time to just like, like put aside the pessimism that would otherwise overtake you and, and, and just, you know, kind of like be in a good mood and be nice to people and have other people be nice to you. Maybe it doesn't always work out that way, you know, and um, maybe watch a Hallmark movie where everything always ends up perfectly at the end, you know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's true. And even that, if, that's the definition even if it's, of a Hallmark Even if it's movie. a delusional fantasy, it's still it's still just nice to know that this is, it's just a nice thought to, to to harbor that, you know, you know, maybe things aren't so bad. And things are you raise a good point because in a typical movie, um, you know, when the critics pan something it's usually because the ending is predictable or there wasn't a twist or you know it was too much of a happy feel-good movie with the hallmark movies you just expect it to be a certain way and yeah you know it's like uh scooby-doo you know at the end the ghost isn't real you know you just know that so yeah the the the, in in the end the 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 romantically interested couple are going to kiss um and um and nothing more Nothing more, <laughs> you know, and, and they're and they're going to be happy. They'll be under the mistletoe, and um, you know, if there's a child involved, they'll be like all hugging and like you know, the implied thing is that they're all staying together forever and everything's perfect. And um, uh, no, they're not going to end the movie with you know like a double murder, right? Or um, <laughs> or, or or a messy divorce hearing, or you know, <laughs> you get, I think you go up one channel to like oxygen or something. And then okay, you, you get all that stuff. See, but, I don't have cable, so I right. don't have all those options. But do you remember back in the the days of um, when the rules for Hollywood were a lot stricter? In fact, before they had the rating system, um, you know, now how we have G, PG, PG. 14 R and all that other stuff. Sure. You know, that didn't come into play until I believe the early sixties, mid sixties, as a matter of fact, 
um, where it was even suggested, but they did have a code of conduct, um, like where uh, movies would have to be approved by the Motion Picture Association. And one of the rules was if any people were kissing and they happened to be in a bedroom, both people had to have one foot on the floor. I, I remember that rule. And as I recall, if you remember the old Dick Van Dyke show, for example, <laughs> yes, I um, love it. married couples always had to have their own beds. Mm-hmm. Like they had two beds in the bedroom if there was Correct. a scene in the like bedroom. They don't actually sleep anywhere like within <laughs> 10 feet of each other. And children are created by the stork, I think. Um, <laughs> so. It happens during the off season. You know, the, the first season ends, the next sex season starts, and there's a baby there, you know? But um, the bottom line is, is that, you know, those, that's a nice, it's a it's a good place to be, you know? And, and it doesn't just have to be Hallmark. We, on Thanksgiving, we watched um, It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, that's you know? always good. You know, that one reason why that is such an uh, amazing movie is because, you know, there is a darker side to it, but then it, it takes you down the path of, you know, highlighting how if you're not um, in tune with your yourself and all the gifts that you truly do have and you take them for granted and you let yourself get down, you allow the world around you to bring you down. Um, and if you, I guess if you have faith in those who love you and what you truly do have that no one can take away from you. Uh, everything is good in the end, but it gets pretty dark in the middle, you know, <laughs> I mean, it does. how it does. many, how nope. many movies from the 1940s are there suicide attempts that end up? Yeah. In the end, you know? And and I'll tell you, I forgot. Is that Lyle, Lionel Barrymore that plays Potter? Yes, absolutely. Well, I forgot how, um, expertly evil they made him look mm-hmm. i mean it was remarkable like he was like the ultimate grumpy old man greedy grumpy old man yeah you know? i mean it was it was really something but you know it, it it you know not to be too cheesy but you know ultimately it really is a wonderful life and and we in the united states i think we lose track of that a lot of times yeah. about what um you know, good circumstances we all live in, you know, um, most do. I mean, I, I often think, I mean, all you got to do, dude, is read the international news every morning, like read the international section of the New York times. Mm -hmm. And you will constantly remind yourself about what a wonderful country we actually live in. But, um, that's, it's a shame because many of us do just forget all the freedoms that we do have. And the fact that we don't live in a world where you just have to accept, complete randomness, uh, an arbitrary killing, you know, I mean, that just happened. That's part of people's lives all over the world. And also we don't have mass starvation. We don't have bombs falling, um, from rival, you know, uh, militia groups. Um, you know, I mean, obviously we have problems and there's, yeah. we have, there's, and we do yeah. have, you know, we do but, have people that are hungry and, but, but on the level of problems that we see around the world, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, we're in a pretty good place overall. So let's talk about one of our, um, American problems that we can't seem to shake over the years. Okay. And that is, uh, I'm going to say it racism and it came up again. You listeners will recall that over the past oh, a month or so, uh, all manner of media have been chomping at the bit to, get both John and I on the air, on TV and the newspaper and so forth. And this has happened actually to a lot of lawyers in Wisconsin because of the great, uh, you know, emphasis on the Rittenhouse trial that was occurring. But one of the interviews that I could not do because I was busy doing actual law stuff was I did get a uh, 
call from the New York Times. They wanted to do a piece on how juries are selected and how we end up, as we did in both the Rittenhouse and the Arbery case, with um, what appears to be a, a very disproportionate uh, you know, percentage of minorities as it relates to the community itself. And I thought that would be interesting to talk about. One, because I think people would like to know how juries are selected, um, and, you know, the, how the random pool comes about uh, on the one hand. And secondly, um, I honestly don't know how to fix the problem. Um, th- there are a lot of different ways that we have um, – as a society tried to do this. And there's two sides to this. I always found this very interesting when I learned about it in law school. This isn't just because a person who is a defendant may be a particular race. That, that's, you know, that's something to consider. But it's also the fact that uh, people of color, minorities in the community, have a right to participate in government by being on a jury. You know, you have to look at that side of it as well. Well, they do now, and there was yeah. a time when they did not. Well, of course, of course. I mean, it was literally against the law. But the um, I have the dynamics of of challenging a veneer, as it were, uh, is very complicated. I know you and I have discussed in some of our own cases, you know, different strategies for how you deal with this, and you know, uh, basically, when you're looking at, um, you show up in court, you may know who you're potential jurors are a little bit in advance. Um, if there's, if it's a, one of those trials where you expect that there's going to be a lot of potential strikes for cause, I've had cases where you know the jurors, potential jurors' identities, maybe even a month in advance, and you know what the overall makeup of the bigger pool is. But <clears throat> your typical trial, you show up on the morning of trial and you may have had 24 hours or even less notice of who your actual potential participants are. And I guess it's always handy to know in your particular jurisdiction, what is the racial makeup of your community at large? Um, Because theoretically, the jury pool, not necessarily the jury you get, but the jury pool itself is supposed to be you know, reflective of the overall racial makeup of your community. We have to take a break right now, John, but I want to launch right into your thoughts about that subject. Right. When you we got it. And we are back with more legal defense and more jury analysis here. And so <laughs> uh, when we left, you were teeing up the, the, the issue of um, uh, how courts in, in Wisconsin, I guess in particular, but really anywhere, um, we can focus team. on Wisconsin because I think you and I are more familiar with how yeah. most familiar with how that. Well, I guess my point is, is that it's kind of a similar issue all over the country. But um, uh, but how courts obtain lists of jurors and um, and what those jurors are supposed to look like. And by look like, I mean, are they reflective, as you said, um, of the community at large. And so that could be actually a number of levels. That can be a racial thing. It could be an ethnic thing. It could be um, uh, a, a, an economic thing, class thing. Uh, you know, so for example, if you are a very wealthy defendant um, and maybe this, you don't even live there. You just happen to get busted there or something. And, um, you know, it's a heinous crime. Maybe you 
drunk and killed somebody or whatever, or, but, and it's a very poor community and they really hate rich people or at least obnoxious rich people, you know, um, you know, that's the sort of bias that we defense lawyers and really the, 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 the state should be doing this too. It's to root out that sort of bias. Right. The whole idea is to not have bias. Race is kind of the one that people key in on because we are such a racially polarized country. Um, you know, the, the, the statistics in Wisconsin, I believe are, you know, we have what five and a half million people approximately. And we have about 13% of those are African-American or other people of color. Um, and I would say the vast majority of that number live in um, either Milwaukee or Madison or Green Bay, you know, in, in like the larger numbers. Um, and and so, so the question is, you know, like, how do we how how do what's the system by which we uh develop these pools of jurors from which we will pick a jury to hear a case and and it's it's kind of like um you know each county is responsible for this mm-hmm. so each county can come up with their own thing but i think largely it's driver's license um information and voter rolls. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I don't know if counties people- are allowed to use records such as that. Um, but I think that there is a potential challenge if, say, for example, they only used uh, driver's license records. I mean, I, I think if you only use driver's license records, you'd have a problem because you're going to end up with plenty of people that don't live in the county anymore or uh, the obvious thing is that there are plenty of people in our communities that don't have driver's licenses, right? So that that would be excluding people, you know, for economic reasons or age reasons, right? I mean, what if somebody is, they've decided they're, they don't need to drive anymore because they've reached a certain age, the vision's going or whatever. And is that person then less likely to be picked as a juror? And same thing with voting records, um, you know, it's things that are public that people can access are probably, you know, any all number of all manner of records in that way can be used. Because how else would it work? I mean, you can't just go around. Actually, John, I think you know this. This happened to me in a trial once. We didn't have enough jurors show up. Normally, uh, I've had happened dozens of times where a judge says, well, we couldn't form a jury. We're going to try again another day. You know, like if it was a snowstorm or I don't okay. know whatever's going on. But I had a trial that everybody knew had to go and no one would, no one wanted it to be delayed at all. And we were very close to the number of jurors we need in order to account for the peremptory strikes and the possible um, challenges for cause. And what you don't want to do is get started and then, you know, bust your jury because that's, you're wasting hours and hours of time. But I had a case where we needed four more people. And the judge said he got the sheriff's department uh, to go out walking down the street <laughs> around the courthouse. And the first four people that they ran into, they escorted them back to the courthouse and said, hey, you're, you're on jury duty right now. So against their will. Well, they pretty much said you're being called for jury duty. Come with me. Okay. And yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Against their will. Um, so two lessons about that. Number one. uh, 
you know, if you get called for jury duty, please show up because if you don't, you could cause lots of problems. And the other thing is don't go on a walk anywhere around the courthouse if you don't want to be on jury. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A quick aside, um, you know, it's supposed to be a jury of our peers. And I had a client many, many years ago who um, was a particularly difficult client in in a demanding sense. But I can rise to that occasion. I don't mind that. Uh, but he insisted on having a jury of his peers. And since he was a transvestite, yep. and he wanted 12 transvestites. And I thought, I'm pretty sure that, A, that the judge isn't going to uh, filter them out by transvestitism. And, <laughs> and B, I don't know that we can get 12 people, you know, that we even in – in well, any rural county in Wisconsin, to you, you to, might be able to, but the point is that that's not what we mean by a jury of no, peers. It's not. Um, and by the way, that's this should be apparent to. I've had that same discussion with clients before. Like, hey, I want uh, a jury of my peers. They all need to be accountants born in Ohio with the last name Smith. You know, um, <laughs> so. But the, the what a jury of peers means is a jury of people that are not lawyers, judges, or people involved with the government that is prosecuting the defendant. That's what it means. You know, people, just people in the public that aren't there for any other reason than the fact that they've been summoned to serve on a jury. So um, in both the uh, Rittenhouse case and the Arbery case, there was an issue with regard to the number of minorities that were present for the initial jury pool. And so, John, I mean, ideally, if a a county is doing things right, and again, they can sort of do it however they wish to achieve that. And by the way, you're not entitled to an exact percentage. If your county has 13% minorities, you can't say, you know, and you get a 12% minority makeup, you can't say, Nope, no good. It's got to be, you have to examine the process by which people are brought in. And if it, if it excludes people for some reason. Now, you mentioned something about the economic aspect of this as well. And I think that's something that has a much greater impact and not just as it relates to race, um, but also as it relates to socioeconomic status. You know, and I know that when we're picking a jury, the judge will say, hey, did anybody work third shift? Uh, Does anybody here have two or three jobs? Does anybody here a single parent that can't make arrangements for um, child care? You know what? All of those categories are people that presumably, although not not mutually exclusively, but presumably are going to tend to be in a lower economic class, people that have two or three jobs, people that are working, you know, third shift, somebody that, that has two kids without, without the dad around, not necessarily, but I'm just saying that there is going to be probably a larger percentage of people that for economic reasons, it is um, a hardship for them to be in a jury. Now, you know, this, when the judge is going through all the reasons why somebody might, uh, be excused for cause hardship in and of itself doesn't get you there. But if it comes down to the person complains and whines enough about it, and they say, this would really be a devastating thing for me economically, judges tend to let them go. And, you know, part of it is how much do jurors get paid per day? $16 a day. 
$16 a day. And imagine if you were one of those unlucky souls that has to sit through three weeks or four weeks of that. Well, I was just about to bring up the length of the trial. So, like, in Wisconsin, the Kyle Rittenhouse case was a huge international sensation. Um, Lasted a little over two weeks. Well, I guess, you know, when you take in deliberations, it was three three weeks. Pushing three. Right. But the actual conduct of the evidence was about two weeks, including jury selection, which took one day. Now, um, those jurors were asked to stay around for a couple of weeks and a couple of days, according to the judge. Right. That was his best estimate. In many other states, though, in California, for example, homicide trials can last for months. Mm -hmm. Months. That is jury selection. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the jury selection can last, you know, God knows, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And I don't know why that is. Well, I guess we can pick this up on the other end. But uh, uh, but that is a that is just a really perplexing question about, like, how people can take off that kind of time. Exactly. Well, we'll talk about that more when we come back. We're back, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, you guys don't know this because you can't see, but. Um, when we, we have to log into this recording system and, you know, we give ourselves a different name every time. And today I'm Kirkenspiel and John has identified himself as the dude. And during the uh-huh. break, when our commercials were playing there, I'm like, is that a big Lebowski reference? And he's like, of course it is. And he was telling me he's got this great picture of him and, uh, Jeff Daniels. Um, it's not know, Jeff Daniels. It's, it's uh, um, what's his name? Yeah. Why did I say Jeff Daniels? Jeff Daniels looks like him. Why am I why am I blanking on his name too? Um, but uh anyway, enough about right. my 15 minutes of fame. Um yeah. <laughs> uh the um the point we were we left off on was about Jeff like Bridges, dude. Uh, it's Jeff Bridges. Oh, That's I just just Bridges, correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah. The point we left off on, though, was like how people can take off like trials in Wisconsin, like most garden variety trials, OWIs, you know, a robbery, you know, maybe uh, things like that. Two days, three days. That's it. Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe a homicide, usually a week. That's it. That's it. And not this, you know, months and months and months and months. I don't know how, you know, I don't know how the courts can function like that. Number one. And number two is. I don't know how folks can take off that kind of time. Yeah. And maybe that's the problem is that they can't and that the only people left on are retirees. Yep. Retirees or people that are, you know, it really doesn't matter to them whether they are there or not. You know, <laughs> like they, their chauffeur will take them to court every day. And I don't know if you've ever seen like court watchers, people who just come to court and just sit and watch trials and well, yeah. they're often retirees. And um, well, I, I do that whenever I'm in a, an unusual place. Like I went to Canada for a conference and I, I watched an entire two days worth of proceedings that were going on, which was fast. I do that when I go to New York and I saw, I saw the El Chapo trial. I saw, um, he didn't didn't see your face or anything, did he? That would be, (laughs) no, we were, uh, we couldn't make it into the actual courtroom uh, cause of limited space. We were in the overflow watching it on uh, video, but, um, uh, I wanted to go see the, I can't, don't try to pronounce your name correctly, but, um, Jelaine Maxwell. Oh yeah. It's going on right now, right? It's going on right now. It just started this week. And, yeah. um, 
I actually went on to Pacer uh, to read some of the briefs, and um, uh, it, it was quite the um, quite the adventure to get to trial. A lot of fights about who's going to testify and what cause sort of um, things they were going to allow to bring up about the victims, and um, uh, and then they were constantly. She was been detained for like you know a year or two now, and all these motions about getting her out on bail or better conditions. And apparently the guards were coming in and like flashing their flashlights every 15 minutes in her cell and she couldn't sleep. And I know, I know I didn't hear about any of this, but um, until I was reading that, but um, point is, is that there's lots of fascinating things going on in the world of the law. I I would venture to say that um, one of them is very different than the topic of jury selection. And that is the um, case that's in, was argued in front of the Supreme Court this week, um, Dobbs versus uh, Women's Health. Um, there's a longer name to it, but out of Mississippi, the 15-week abortion ban. Um, and I don't know you. I, I don't know how closely you followed it. Uh, I've been following it, but I really didn't. Uh, I was really right in the middle of a bunch of other stuff that happened. But I'm sure you know more about what ex- actually well, happened. So here's the interesting thing: is like, all right. To me, you know, abortion is a is a important issue in terms of privacy interests and you know bodily autonomy and that sort of thing. And I think everybody can kind of like appreciate that, even if you are dead set against abortion. Mm-hmm. But the fascinating thing, as I've been following this pretty closely and listening to a lot of commentators on various podcasts talk about it, and then I didn't listen to the two hours of oral arguments, but I heard a lot of the snippets from a variety of justices. And um, the fascinating thing to me wasn't the question. Abortion is just like sort of the underlying um, fuel that's feeding this fire. But the bigger question is um, what's known as stare decisis, which Mm -hmm. um, is a Latin term. And I, don't know why we still use Latin, but we do because <laughs> well, it makes, know, it makes us feel fancier. important or something. Yeah, we sound like we're fancier. In a, and it's loosely translated to, you know, uh, to, to, to say that um, we observe precedent. Right. So once a precedent is established, for example, Roe, um, uh, that you're not supposed to disturb that unless it was very obviously wrong and it was like a horrible decision for, you know, let's pick a horrible decision. Uh, Dred Scott, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, um, you know, uh, things like that. Um, and uh, or Korematsu, for example. Um, so so the, the, the questions that the court seemed to be parsing were always along those lines. It, and, and I think what is really troubling about this issue of abortion and the way the courts have handled it is the integrity of the court itself. Right. And I know that that's Chief Justice Roberts. Um, you know, I heard actually some, as an aside, I heard some podcasters um, teasingly saying, well, he's the Chief Justice in name only, but really it's Justice Thomas's actual Chief Justice because he seems to be leading the charge on the, on the you know, he really seems to be leading the conservative charge on the court. But yeah. be that as it may, you know, the, he, the, 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 the real question is like, you know, is this, um, is, is, is Roe, was Roe wrongly decided in the first place? 
And if so, should if it's abandoned, um, are we just throwing the law into because stability is like one of the hallmarks of law, right? Yeah. And by the way, stare decisis in Latin actually means to stand by that which has been decided. So it's, it's, you know, the principle that there isn't not just you look at precedent, but you're obligated to respect it, you know, to stand by it mm-hmm. um, and to protect it, essentially. And, um, but, but again, I think that I, I know what happens in these situations and, and you do as well. What happens is if there is a push to, to change whatever fundamental holding that they would focus on in Roe, because there's several aspects of it. I mean, that was the case that I think where the United States Supreme Court first recognized the existence of a privacy right in somewhere in the Constitution. I mean, that's huge because that relates well, actually, to privacy. Actually, that's not entirely accurate because Roe was premised on Griswold versus Connecticut, which was a few years before which actually established they found, yes, there's a privacy interest they found it in the 14th Amendment. Yeah, right. That's where they yeah. found it, right in the 14th Amendment. So, <laughs> but the point being that that's, that's one of how it extends to, you know, a person's right to self-determination combined with what it means as it relates to that privacy interest. It's very complicated. Constitutionally, it's very complicated. It's not just, a lot of people think Roe stands for, you know, People can go get abortions and no one can stop you. I mean, that's kind of, I guess, how it ends up being translated, but there's so much more to it than that. But, you know, what's going to happen, like always, what the court's going to wrestle with, especially if there is a desire to overturn it or some aspect of it, they'll find a way to allow it to stand as precedent, but yet and distinguish it in some way. Right. I mean, isn't that what always well, happens? That's- that's very possible. Um, or they can gut the actual test, which is the viability test. And I'll be honest, I, you know, um, uh, I remember when I first read about Roe, you know, I was probably even before law school and I learned, it was probably even high school, actually, um, that the test was viability. And even as a young person, it struck me as a very strange test because it seemed like um, scientifically problematic, like how, like who determines, I mean, you could maybe come within a couple of weeks of determining that, but it's all guesswork. And so where's the line about, you know, cause courts want to make things as clear as possible and well, right. viability just never seemed clear to me. Well, and then you raise a good point because viability as a, as a matter of actual factual, um, existence. Okay. It's going to vary. It's going to be different for each particular situation. So, and and here's, um, we are coming up on a break, but I just want to introduce this topic. Isn't it true? We all have to agree that whatever the concept of viability would have been in 1973 has got to be different than what it is now. I mean, just scientifically, there's no doubt that's true. Just just medically speaking, it is. Yeah. So Um, so we got to go uh, for a break, but we'll be back right after these messages. We're back with more legal defense. So when we left, we were talking about, um, uh, you know, the precedent and, you know, how we can't really just easily overturn it because the law is supposed to always um, be a stable thing as much as possible. Um, Well, 
I think widely it's widely viewed that Brett Kavanaugh is going to be sort of the decider in chief on this question, on this case. You know um, why? Because he likes beer. And you know, you know why else? Because he still likes beer. He still one. likes beer. Well, you know what? I'm I'm with him on that one. Yeah, I, I know. Like There's no, dis- no debate on that. I actually- you know, it's. I think we can find some common ground across the political divide. Then, uh, you know, beer uh, in Wisconsin, we can find common ground with the Packers, the Brewers, the Bucks. You know, whatever. Yep. Um, but uh, he. Uh, posed um, a bunch of questions to one of the lawyers for the uh, Women's Health Organization, um, and he was ticking off cases like Brown versus Board of Education and, um, uh, you know, many others, but we'll just use that one as an example in how all these cases had overturned prior precedent. Mm -hmm. And why wasn't that a good thing? And if we don't overturn precedent, aren't we living in a very different country? And and he's not wrong, but what he's driving at is I want to overturn Roe. Right. Right. And um and here's here's my big picture view of the Roe decision and the the explosion that it that it ignited throughout the seventies and eighties. And and to today, and that is that we came in through uh, the fifties and sixties with the Warren Court, and regardless of what you think about Warren, he was not, and the court was not afraid to make big bold moves. Miranda versus Arizona, you have to read criminal rights. Gideon versus Rainwright, you have to give criminals. Um, you know, and they were all a lot of them were criminal uh, related. But even um, uh, I think um, I think I, the name was Lawrence v. Texas that uh, you can't. Uh, that was uh, about interracial marriage, or it, you know. And so, case after case after case throughout the tumultuous sixties, yeah, um, was making huge moves, right? right. And a lot, lot of people with some legitimate argument would say, you know, you're not a legislative branch. This is a legislative question and you are just making up the law as you go along. That's not a bit, not a bad argument. I mean, that's kind of, I can see why that would be. The it's, case. I mean, it's, it's not, they're not entirely wrong. Right. Look at know? Miranda, for example, that changed the landscape of law enforcement forever. And yeah. it, it found based on a number of things that are really, I, I would have to think fact specific, but also assumptions, correct assumptions, I think, about the role of law enforcement in that particular situation and what it means. You got to look beyond what the Fifth Amendment says, but why does it say that, you know, is, is what it right. goes into. So. Right. And so, and so all of that case after case after case throughout the 50s and 60s, starting with uh, Brown and really ending with Roe. And if Roe was yet another, you know, there was it was sort of like a habitual thing for them to take huge swings or like swing for the fences on big huge social questions and 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 legal questions. And um and I think that Roe was like the last straw for a lot of um conservatives. And um and it wasn't so it wasn't just about, you know, killing babies as they would see it. You know, it was about um, 
this court that just seems to be eating up uh, the the sphere of power, if power is a circle or, you know, um, and uh, they're part of the pie. If it's a pie chart, their part of the pie is getting bigger and bigger, according to some folks. And, um, and, and it shouldn't be that way, you know, at, at, at least the way that folks see it. You know, I think there was even a question at the Dobbs hearing from Justice Barrett about, well, you know, um, uh, the, the, um, the Constitution doesn't say anything about abortion. Well, it doesn't say anything about judicial review either. So should we reverse Mar- Marbury versus Madison? Right, right. <laughs> you know, it's well, maybe. I don't 1803. Know. <laughs> so, right. um, so it, there's a bigger question. That, that was really her, that was her input was to observe that the word abortion isn't in the Constitution or in the Bill of Somebody <laughs> observed it. I can't remember. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that took some real genius to figure that out. Yeah, right? I know. I know. <laughs> you know, but I'll tell you, though, that um, – that that's what that was that was the fascinating thing to me was that and 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 that's true in a lot of areas so um uh you know for example if they do decide to overturn roe you know who's to say they can't just pick and choose other things too i mean abortion seems to be carved out as this special area of the law that doesn't get the same protections as other things like for example gun rights and right. of course, there's a big gun rights case in the pipeline right now too. So, so um, I, I, Justice um, Sotomayor made a comment about how how we were going to um, eliminate the stench of political, uh, like a, a political stench. She used the word stench <laughs> um, if we were to overturn Roe, you know, and we were just going to be seen as another committee of the Congress. Right. And um, and that's a complaint that's been made about our Supreme Court um, a lot of times, and and she's not wrong. Um, so it's all honestly, I think the court's in like a no win situation here. No matter True. what they do, if they just if you know you know sometimes, tinker, if they overturn, the win by refusing to accept the petition for cert, you know. Uh, well, you know what? No one really felt like the chief asked about this. But when the appeal was made, um, the uh, the petition didn't ask them to overturn Roe. Right. But when they briefed it on the merits, they did ask them. And so when they accepted the case, they didn't accept it to, re- to, to maybe reverse Roe. They accepted it on a completely separate, yeah. lesser question. That happens and, sometimes, and, although this is overt. Sometimes I think it happens by mistake. Where Well, no, the, this wasn't a mistake, though, because what happened between the petition and the merits briefing, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, Justice Barrett came to be. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yes. So, so, so nobody, nobody would say that out loud, but um, <laughs> that's really what's going on. And so right. that's part of the problem is that if – if our court is a court and not just a political committee, then it shouldn't matter that we have a change of personnel. It really shouldn't. It shouldn't matter that much anyways. But it, that's one of the main reasons why we have stare decisis and why we have precedent is for that very reason. And that's because, why they have life tenure. Right. The change in makeup of the court shouldn't have anything to do with, I mean, is the law black and white? Is it absolute? Is it something that you can find and rely upon somewhere buried within text and the logical interpretation of that text? All of this suggests the answer is no. 
uh, it's it's arbitrary and seems to be at the whim of whomever the, the you know that's why we have such a battle over who ends up on the Supreme Court and you know this whole we the notion of court packing and whether or not people can stall somebody like uh, someone who's nominated when there's you know two years left in the in the president's term and yet that's not enough time to make sure yeah. that they can go through the whole yeah. process of the Senate confirmation. Um, you know, it, it becomes extremely political. And, I, you know, I think about this all the time. There's got to be some way. That is something that, that can be adjusted, clearly. You know, the manner in which, I, you know, maybe life tenure is not the answer. I mean, I know that for some reasons it's supposed to be rendering those justices completely immune from political influence. That's the idea behind lifetime tenure. Um, and the fact that they don't have to worry about the popularity of their decision or not. The only way you get knocked off the Supreme Court is if you retire or die or become, you know, incapacitated in some way. But you know, I'll be very interested to see where this ends up going and how what reforms what you mean the tentacles of these issues and where they end up extending into because all that ground we made. I I'm I remember going through law school. And being fascinated by how um, how the court—I'm not going to say they reached for, but they found meaning in things that made sense. And like Miranda is a great example. Uh, who on earth would have ever guessed that Gideon versus Wainwright would have been decided the way it was? I mean, it's just an outstanding, um, uh, you know. And perhaps it was wrong if we're looking at it as far as extending something that may or may not have been there. I don't know. Well, no, we're out of time. <laughs> oh no, because I wanted to get into textualism and originalism. So, oh, we've done that time. before. We can do it again. We'll do. We it can do it again. You never get enough of that. Never get enough of the textualism or originalism. I get you. All right, sir. Okay. We are gonna see you next week. Well, you'll hear us anyway. Um, right here on thirteen thirty and one hundred one point five. It's been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend. Have a great one.